Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to discuss trends and opportunities related to something many of us do every day, work. In fact, we're going to take a look at the future of work and offices, and to some extent, the business districts and cities where many of those offices are found. To put a microscope to that, we've got a great guest expert. He's Zeke Manaya. Zeke Manaya has been the Future of Work editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer since the summer of 2020, when he was tapped to lead the year-long grant-supported Future of Work project. Before arriving in Philadelphia, Zeke launched the CFO Network for Forbes Media, where he edited as well as reported on trends in corporate finance and the evolving role of the chief financial officer. In addition, Zeke spent nine years at the Wall Street Journal, where he was a foreign correspondent in South America and covered corporate finance and breaking news in the business world. Zeke cut his teeth in California newspapers, working for three dailies in the Golden State, including the Los Angeles Times, Modesto B, and the Press Enterprise, covering everything from cops to county government. He's originally a native New Yorker. Before we get to Zeke, I'd like to say just a few words on behalf of our sponsor, Rich Gostkowski, financial advisor at Edward Jones. Many of us spend more time thinking about what's for dinner than thinking about retirement. But if you think your retirement needs deserve more attention, Edward Jones can help. Stop by Edward Jones financial advisor, Rich Gostkowski's office at 1544A Paoli Pike in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Hi, Zeke. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's, uh, it's great to, to chat with you. Well, it's great to chat with you too, Zeke. You're involved in an area that just cuts across so many lives. And there's so much that has happened in recent times that makes what you do that much more important. Before we get into any of that, though, I'd like you to please tell our listeners just a little bit, Zeke, about how and when you became involved in journalism. Was it something you planned to do for years and years and years and studied? Or did you, like some people do, fall into it? Jeff, I, I definitely was. I'm in the fall into it camp. Okay. Um, yeah, I was determined to to be some sort of literature professor in college. I and uh, I I had uh, a cousin who worked with. See if you can follow this. A cousin who worked with the wife of a Village Voice reporter. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, the great Wayne Barrett. Um, I, I didn't know him from a rock in the woods, but uh, he apparently was a very famous uh, inv investigative reporter, um, just a great guy. And I was his intern and I fell in love. I fell in love hard. I, I really enjoyed researching. I enjoyed Wayne's philosophy of writing, uh, being fighting, uh, as in fighting for causes. And um, from there, it, it just took off. I went on to work at uh, 
as a writer's assistant at ABC with Peter Jennings. And then I went, I did magazine work for a while. Um, and, but then eventually I settled into daily journalism, daily newspapers. You are involved in something I'd mentioned just before that's become very hot. And that is the topic of the future of offices and workspaces. What I'm curious about is when did you start paying attention to that, Zeke? I know the Inquirer has hired you specifically to look at the future of work. But when did you start paying attention to that? Yeah, it's the oddest thing. It's, again, it's one of those things where you sort of fall backwards into an opportunity. I covered at the Wall Street Journal corporate finance Mm. and CFOs. So um, just very naturally, a very wonky beat, right? Beat being coverage area. And uh, and, and as you, you mentioned before, uh, the future of work and all that other stuff, it's really hot now. But it was a wonky corner of a very wonky coverage area that I just got really interested in. You know, CFOs intersect a lot of internal corporate decisions. And one of those decisions is what a a workspace looks like? You know, is it a stack of cubicles? Is it an open space? Does it have a slide and an omelet chef? Um, Those kind of decisions cross the desk of a CFO. But then the pandemic happened. And then all of the forces that were shaping the modern workplace just accelerated. You know, it just sort of slammed on the accelerator. And all the technological changes and all the forces that were reshaping the workplace just zoomed supernova. So all of a sudden it became, as you said, very hot. Yeah. Looking forward focuses on the future, as you may know, Zeke. But what we would first like to do is, is have you take a look backwards a bit. If you wouldn't mind sharing with us your perspectives on how offices and workspaces have evolved over, say, mm-hmm. the past two to three decades. And again, I'm speaking really at this point about prior to COVID. So say up until about March 2020, what were you seeing and hearing as an employee and as a journalist? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting uh, question. Uh, Like the modern workplace, uh, the the reason we go to offices, right, is is the need to standardize and supervise specialized work. Um, And that's something that uh, we first saw in, in London with the East India Company. Uh, And just as enterprises started to scale, uh, we needed to get everybody in one place. So uh, that that was in the early 1700s. But fast forward to the United States, right? And uh, for a very long time, there was no innovation in what an office looked like. It was just sort of the same kind of ruthless efficiency that you see in factory spaces, factory floors just use every inch of space. So it was one desk in front of the other, in front of the other, in front of the other. No real innovation for a very long time um, from that East India office to, you know, uh, drafters in the engineering firm in the United States. But in 1960, it was a big innovation. The cubicle. Mm. Uh, The cubicle came along. Cubicle. Yeah. And uh, you would think the cubicle kind of has a bad name to it now, but at first, it was meant to give more privacy and more autonomy to the worker, right? Um, except that the reason it got such a bad name is um, to sort of squeeze in more workers. The cubicles got smaller and smaller and, and more oppressive and more isolating. 
Um, so that's what happened in the 1960s. And then you jump forward to the tech companies um, and their kind of take on the office, it became open floor plans, right? Um, which was an indication of not of the company's uh, spirit of innovation and collaboration. You know, look how cool we are. We have open spaces, right? Yeah. Uh, so that was something that we saw in the 90s. And, and, and in the meantime, uh, remote work was very rare. Um, yes. It was very rare. Uh, it, it was a perk for like big wigs and companies, uh, but you know, uh, normal everyday Joes like you and me, we'd 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 had no hope of of working um, remotely. But uh, more recently, things like hot desking and hoteling became more popular. And hot desking is simply having access to a network, but not having a physical desk. So you come in in the morning and you you find a desk that's empty. You sit down and you log in. The difference between hot desking and hoteling is hoteling is you you need to make a reservation to a workspace like a WeWork or something. Um, and hot desking is you know I I used to hot desk at the Wall Street Journal. I used to just walk in and, and find a desk that was empty. I, I didn't have my own personal space. Mm. So that was something that's that brings us up to the present and all the technology that we needed to work remotely was already there. But I think there was, we were stuck in the sense that we have to go to a physical office space to work. We have to go to uh, be part of a team to contribute to a culture. And um, for some reason, it didn't become painfully obvious to folks uh, until the pandemic that we don't need to go to an office. Yeah. That's a good overview. Going back to what you were saying, Zeke, about how things have changed over the last several decades. And thank you. You went back to the 18th century. <laughs> you went through time very quickly, by the way. Yeah. And I know time flies, but that was unbelievable. Um, <laughs> but what I want to ask you about is if you think about those offices back in the day, East India Company, I think you was the East India Company. Yeah, yeah. They, okay. they dom dominated trade. Okay. And if you think about them and if you think about um, the plants where you had workers and you said everybody was kind of crammed in mm -hmm. and before you get, and then there was this evolution of sorts, you mentioned the tech companies, but before we get to the remote work, which I know is a big thing that we'll get to here, how did that affect the business districts of cities where people lived, obviously where they worked was the place they went to, how was that affecting the environment in those areas where they yeah. were working and living? That's a great question. If I could start again, way back in the past, you go to Egypt and, and, and you look at the pyramids and you go, okay, that's a really important building, obviously. Don't, I don't know what it is, but it's really important. Um, and think about the, um, the, the folks who are going to be digging up our downtowns and our biggest buildings are our office buildings. You know, um, those those specialized centers of commerce are our most important buildings. And I think there's the increasing importance of urban areas that occurs in the 1920s in the United States, right? That's the first time that the majority of Americans live in cities, um, 51%. Um, and then you have, uh, following World War II, all these GIs coming back, the increasing marketing of cars, the explosion of housing because of the GI Bill, um, so you have this explosion of suburbs, right? So what I'm getting at here is that 
we, at that point, completely separated where we live and where we work. And thanks to highways and, and rail and all that. So we had these specialized districts of business. And, and if you think about it, why aren't there an apartment building next to a factory next to uh, headquarters of a, of a company? Uh, because very soon, at, as we started scaling up um, and became a superpower in the early 20th century, uh, we just needed more space. Uh, we needed to separate the, the factories and the manufacturing from the back of the office and from the guys who filed all the papers. And then there's the, the phenomenon of white flight from downtowns into the suburbs. So what you had left was these, you know, these, these uh, districts that were dedicated solely to commerce. So that is the importance of that. So we have these downtown districts, and what happens when manufacturing goes away? There's a greater importance on the businesses that support commuters and business travelers, especially in transportation and leisure and hospitality. So as we move forward in our conversation, we'll, we'll talk about what happens when all those commuters disappear from downtowns and all the businesses that they support. Yeah, the effect has to be profound. Now, looking forward isn't just about the United States. Did the rest of the world, or at least the developed world, tend to operate in the same pattern and have the same changes that we've seen? Or has it been vastly different for mm -hmm. people in, in other countries? That's a great question. Yeah, I think you see the same kind of globalization and growth of urban areas around the world. You see the same kind of concentration in wealth in smaller and smaller groups, which naturally puts the focus on discrete areas, discrete downtowns, discrete business sections. And the same factors that shaped urban America has also shaped cities around the world. In 1950, according to the UN, in 1950, there were only two mega cities in the world, and mega cities with more of a population of 10 million. Wow. And now there are over 29. So there's, it's just growing and growing and commerce is just picking up speed. So I think these trends are all over the world and only getting faster. Okay. So on the one hand, we have the phenomenon of cities that have more than 10 million people growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think we may be hearing from you that, in fact, maybe there are going to be fewer people living or going into those cities as things change. But I, I don't want to read into this. Well, you're the <laughs> expert. You can talk about it. OK, so let's bring us up to the present day. We're at this point in the game, like 14 plus months, at least in the United States. It's longer. It's almost a year and a half if we look at other parts of the world that have been dealing with the COVID pandemic. How has COVID affected people's workspaces, where they work, and the surrounding business communities? Mm -hmm. That's a, another great question. I think the, the simple lessons that COVID-19 has taught us about business and the global economy is, is something that if you would have told me before the pandemic, I wouldn't have believed you, that the global economy can still run without workers in an office building. And if you would have told me that before the pandemic, I would have said, uh, you know, are you nuts? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you need to have everybody in an office building. But COVID-19, I said, no, there's other ways of getting 
work done. And another lesson that we that we saw uh, is that uh, commercial real estate has been hit very hard. And there's a scramble to convert the spaces that are all of a sudden now empty. Like, what are we going to do with all these spaces now? And that's a mighty big burden that's on the the landlords and commercial real estate folks across the country. And there was just record-setting vacancies. And people moved to make offices into hotels, hotels into offices. All of a sudden, warehouses, for example, became really prized real estate. It wasn't in the 90s, the best a warehouse could hope to become is some sort of loft. Now with the explosion of e-commerce, well, all of a sudden, Amazon is snapping up just about every warehouse they mm. can get its hands on. So th- those are some of the, the the trends that we are seeing now deep into this uh, this COVID thing. What's happening with the design of the offices? What's happening to those business districts? And are people still living in these cities or are they moving out? Yeah, it, it's an extraordinary time in which we live in, Jeff. The internal changes, uh, migration patterns, and demographics have the potential of being really impactful. Uh, the New York Times reported that the vacancy rate nationwide climbed over 16.4%, the highest in about a decade. Wow. But it isn't just empty empty offices. There was a downward pressure on rents as well. So landlords had more vacancies, and they also had to cut some people a break, you know, if they didn't want to lose more tenants. What do these offices look like? What I'm hearing is that um, there's a lot of panic about elevators and closed spaces. You see these like ubiquitous decals on the floor that show you where to stand. And the overarching philosophy of some of these new offices is, okay, you don't have to come here every day, but we need you to come in to collaborate. So some desks are being taken away to make more space. Uh, but also to create more spaces for collaboration, more conference rooms, more places where we can get together and, you know, look at a screen because half the team is going to be at home. So I'm, I'm hearing a, a lot about that, those kind of changes. I'm hearing that there's a lot of um, safety precautions being put in, plexiglass everywhere, and those kinds of changes. But as we sort of move towards a hybrid model, oh, by the way, not everybody's sold on this, right? Not yeah. everybody's sold on nobody's not everybody's sold on remote work. But as we move to a hybrid model, the modern office is changing to accommodate having half of your team at home and half of your team in-house. Now, Zeke, on that point, is this being done in sort of a staggered way? So for example, Zeke, you're coming in Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Jeff, you're coming in Tuesday and Thursday. Or is it Zeke? You're the guy who comes in. Jeff, you're the guy who stays at home. Yeah. How are they doing it? I think those are the questions that are being decided as we speak, right? There's a fear that you're you're creating like a permanent underclass within uh, your enterprise, right? Like if I choose to be in the office four days a week and you choose to be out of the office four days a week, I get all the FaceTime and you're still a hard worker and you're still doing great, but you're not in the office. Um, am I going to get all the promotions, right? Are are you going to be stuck at home? We're doing the same job. So that's one fear that people have. Do you really need to show your face in the office? Some folks say it matters for company culture and others say, you know, no, I think the pandemic has taught us that all we need to do is hop on the phone and hop on Zoom and, and, and we could still row together as a team. 
but we have some companies who have different philosophies on this, right? Like companies like JP Morgan Chase, Ford Motor, Target uh, have are being given given up their office space, right? Um, and let's not discount the profit motive here. Motive, uh, if we can uh, cut away some expensive leases, then that's going to look good on our balance sheet. But there are some CEOs who are recently making some noise about wanting to go back as business as usual. And this is what really has surprised me that some CEOs are saying things like employees who are not in the office are not as engaged. So if you as an employee hear this from your boss, even if you are offered three days at home, are you going to take it? You really have to give it a thought. So companies yeah. like uh, that are eager to get people back into the office are like, surprisingly, some of the more forward-looking companies, the tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, they're like, you know, everybody come back in, come back. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. you, you, you got your vaccine, let's get back to work kind of thing. And that was really surprising to me. Um, my company, the Philadelphia Inquirer, is still working out the kinks on, on what they want us to do. Here's a question that a lot of uh, companies are going to be dealing with. For example, is everybody going to want to be at home on Friday and Monday? And then, like, does that mean everybody comes to the office on Wednesday? Yeah. So, so you have a crowd of people on Wednesday and everybody wants to go uh, be away for the long weekend. And people have been really good about working and very, very productive, but still being home for the weekend would be a nice perk. So uh, you can't give that to everybody. How do you divvy that up? So there's all these questions that you have to really, when you get down to the nitty gritty of managing a workforce that um, you really have to work out. This is really fascinating. And of course, it's convoluted. Uh -huh. And I want to come back to one of the things that you said, Zeke, which I'm wondering about who is being involved from what you can see in the decisions about what we're going to do post-COVID? Mm -hmm. Is it HR people? Is it the CEO and the top brass? Is it the board of directors? That's a good question. I would say, and these are, this is the kind of stuff I love reporting on, sort of the in, in internal strategy of companies. You need the guy or gal on top, uh, the CEO, to make the decisions. You need to involve the CIO, uh, the chief innovation officer or, or CTO, chief technology officer, because this particular person is going to have to outfit this new like mobile workforce, right? And make sure that everybody stays connected. Um, make sure the growing fear of cyber security um, doesn't bring your enterprise to a halt now that there are more ports of, of jeopardy, so to speak, more points of jeopardy, possible jeopardy. So you have to involve your, your technology people. You have to involve HR as well. You have to involve your, your talent and recruitment folks because as they go about recruiting people, then all of a sudden, if you have a company in Philadelphia, for example, well, you can start recruiting in Austin if you feel like. You can start recruiting in California if you feel like. So that really heats up the talent wars big time. So you have to get your HR folks involved and your recruiters. And then uh, you have to involve folks who are whoever's in charge of uh, the safety and stability of your workforce, be it HR, be it anybody else. They need to be very deeply involved in moving forward because this, this is a once in a generation type of health scare. We cannot discount the, uh, well, let's, let's just call it what it is, the trauma of what we've gone through for a year and a half, the, the, the isolation of working at home, the fear of, of illness, 
And some of your workers are, are, are going to be ready to come back, but some of them won't be. Some of them are going to need uh, a little bit more time and maybe a little bit more counseling uh, or, or, or given, at least given the tools to cope, to cope to, to be in a crowded elevator or a crowded conference room. So it's, it's just a lot of different corners of business what needs to get involved to get folks back into the office. Yeah, I can see there's a lot of different pieces of this puzzle that are going to have to be put together. Zeke, I'm going to ask you one more thing. There's a lot we could talk about on just this very subject of right now with COVID. I want to ask you again to discuss this business of people live in cities, their jobs are near cities. That's the way it's kind of been for the last oh, hundreds of years, except if you, of course, were involved in more agricultural kinds of work. We're talking post-industrial revolution. Are you seeing a pullback? People saying, I'm moving out of the city. I'm working at home in the suburbs. I'm staying there. And of course, that would have a profound impact on transit, <laughs> profound impact on hospitality, profound impact on the various businesses that operate within a city. What are you seeing? Yeah, um, in, in my immediate circle and and in some of the reporting that I've seen, folks are getting up and, and leaving the big cities. I think a little bit of it has been overstated. You know, all these uh, reports of New York being dead and whatnot. But all of a sudden, folks are taking a good long look at their quality of life. You know, when you first got a job, people would ask you about your salary and your benefits. And then one of the uh, first questions would be, would be, how long is your commute? Uh, and, yeah. uh, and, and think about it, how much time we've gotten back. That's gotten people thinking to themselves that, well, you know, why do I need to pay $3,000 for a one-bedroom apartment in New York City when I could uh, be in Colorado, I can be in Austin, I could be in some of these smaller places. And, and this is something that uh, some web designers in the tech industry had figured out a long time ago. But now I think it's gone mainstream. Uh, folks are, are thinking to themselves that I don't need to live where my job is. And it certainly is going to have a big impact on the businesses, the merchants that operate in these cities, shopping and eating out and all those sorts of things. Are you hearing a little bit about that, too, that the business districts are uh, suffering a little bit? Huge. 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 huge yeah. It's, it's, uh, let's take uh, Philly as an example, because it's one I know the best, right? Um, the, the city predicts that about 15% of its suburban commuters will not be coming back wow. to the center city district, right? And this uh, punches about a $450 million hole in the annual budget. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. And it isn't, there's nothing you can do to bridge this. They're just not coming back. We are talking just about tax revenue, the wage tax, but then you talk about they're not parking their cars downtown. They're not eating in the restaurants. They're not going to the retailers. Someone said that it was like a, a billion dollar loss in revenue over the last year in Philly alone. So it's jaw dropping when you see these numbers and you think to yourself, what are we going to do? One fifth of storefronts in Philadelphia, gone, shut it for good. Yeah. But then you think, think of yourself, as uh, an economy, as a country, have faced this before. The, the, the pandemic in 1918, the, the Great Depression, and uh, these forces of disruption, people rise up out of it. And new stuff comes and replaces the old, which is sort of the exciting part of this beat as well. And you, as, as cities reorganize themselves, as the workforce reorganizes itself, 
as the economy reorganizes itself. That is a perfect segue, Zeke. Looking forward is about looking into the future, of course. As we look into the future, I'd like to ask you, based on what you're seeing, you're reporting, you're in a big city yourself. Zeke, if you had to make a prediction or two about what trends or developments you see occurring, such as in how offices and workspaces will look, where they'll be located, what about these business districts, that tax money you talked about that's being lost, cities themselves and their ability to serve their residents with fewer tax dollars, where people will be buying their goods and services. 15% in Philadelphia may never be going into the city, at least during the workday, to buy stuff. What are some of the things that you might predict, realizing, of course, who knows? But yeah, who knows? Yeah. Th- these are educated guesses on your part because you're in this beat. Mm-hmm. Really, you start thinking about how, like I said, these forces are reshaping the city. And you think about every every house in the suburb all of a sudden becomes its own office building. You have a worker there all day. Um, so then there has to be a, a redistribution of civic services, right? All the, the, the trash hauling that you had downtown, well, now you probably need more trash hauling in the suburbs where all these workers are now. And there's probably a more uh, a larger draw on the on the power grid as well. There will be this sort of rethinking uh, redistribution of civic services as these city centers uh, shrink, perhaps in, in importance, and and certainly in the number of workers that go there. According to one survey, we're going to have like 36.2 million Americans working remotely by 2025. That's more than double pre-pandemic numbers. Wow. Yeah, more than double. And this is a pet theory of mine, so that that I think is another impact of this. I think there will be less ageism in the workplace. I think that older workers uh, who stay remote will feel the, the the impact of ageism less because you know they they don't have to sort of line up against some younger workers. They can just sort of do their their work at home. And I, I think that we will see in some places the rise of these two class of workers, the one who works in the office a lot and the one that works remotely. You know, in a, in a company that's mismanaged, I think the remote worker might miss out on some opportunities. I think that's, that's going to happen in some places. Another trend that I've seen is the rise of e-commerce. And, you know, this isn't, I'm not uh, looking in a crystal ball here. It's quite obvious that e-commerce is just exploding. Um, in, in about a year, Amazon bought about, uh, I don't know how many buildings around Philadelphia, just dozens of buildings. And there's a run on warehouse space because all of a sudden you need logistic companies need all this floor space to deliver their products and to guard against any supply chain disruptions. But what's going to happen with that is invariably as more and more of these warehouses become logistic centers, they're going to bump up against communities. So I think Amazon is going to bump up against communities a little bit more than it has already. Communities are going to complain complain about delivery trucks idling. Um, they're going to complain about noise, uh, speeding cars. And uh, that's something that regulation is going to have to catch up to technology to take care of. And that's always been the story of us as a society. Technology springs forward. And then there are other aspects, governance, regulation, culture, tries to keep up in pace. So that's exactly, that's what's exactly happening here. 
Good points. There are two other things I'd like you to comment on before we start looking at opportunities, which is the other reason why we're called looking forward. It's upbeat and opportunities are part of that. One is how do you think from what you're seeing and reporting on employees feel, and I know there's no monolithic group here, but in general, are employees more wanting to move away from the cities and work remotely? Or is there an equal tug among people to say, hey, you know, I really like going into the office. I want to see my fellow workers. It's kind of isolating out here. I've got my family around me all the time. And <laughs> are there surveys? What, what are you hearing and reporting on in terms of employee perspectives on this? Yeah. A lot of the surveys that I've seen have shown that the majority of workers that can work remotely want to. They don't want to go back. Some of the surveys have, have been as high as 80% of surveyed workers want to stay remote. But we have to make a distinction here, a really important distinction. Uh, there are those workers that can work remote and have that option. Uh, but one of the things that the pandemic has underscored is that we have millions and millions and millions of workers who don't share the same kind of protections, right? If I'm in retail, if I'm a, a waiter, if I'm a taxi driver, hourly worker, uh, I don't get sick days, I don't get childcare, I don't have the opportunity to work remote. And I think one of the things that coming out of this pandemic might be possible is the extending of some protections to hourly workers, part-time workers, and uh, what is normally called low-skilled workers. And that would be a major step forward, I think. And the other thing I would want to ask you, Zeke, is there going to be some sort of turning back? And I'll tell you what I mean by that. My guest last week, Doug Betts, talked about this. He's not the only one who talks about it, and that is supply and demand. Between these companies that you mentioned, the Googles, and I think you said Amazons, who really would prefer people be in an office, not at home, in an office environment with others, between that and the potential that the cost of having office space might come down a lot in the city, could you foresee a significant reversal so that, you know what, yeah, this is a big thing we're going through and there'll be 15%, I'll never come back. But the reality of it is a lot of things will come back. And when they come back, businesses will start to do better and you'll see more offices again in the city and the people who left may or may not come back again. We don't know. What do you think about all that, Zeke? That's interesting. Yeah, there, there is definitely a possibility that uh, some companies and some major companies will want to get back to business as usual. And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of people who will never, ever see the inside of an office again. But I do think people tend to have short memories. And I, I think that as we move further um, down the line, further away from the pandemic and its immediate uh, jeopardy and danger, some companies have already shown that they want everybody back into the office, uh, especially those companies with really strong co corporate culture. You think about the Amazons, right? They have a really defined internal culture. Um, and you think about Google, they have a really defined internal culture. So they really stress that. And I can see the companies like that wanting to have people in an office in a centralized location to do the same thing that the East India Company did in 1700s, 
which was supervised and standardized this very specialized work. Yeah. Do you think that there will be some companies like the Apples and the Googles who will be leading the train so that a lot of other companies will say, look, I know we were doing this. That was COVID, but we're not going to do that now. So they will end up dancing to the beat of those companies. Or do you think we're just going to have a lot of disparate responses to how this is handled post-COVID? Yeah, my, my instinct would be that I think there's going to be a lot of different kind of responses. I think that in each sector, you have like bellwether companies, right? Yeah. You have in the journalism world, I think a lot of folks were looking at what the New York Times was doing with its workforce to see what we should do, uh, in, uh, speaking generally. Um, and I think in tech people and logistics, people will look at what Amazon is doing, what Google is doing. So in that sense, um, yeah, they will be leaders and they will keep shaping trends, which is what, by the way, what they were doing before the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, but now it's just as far as what the workforce is, is, is doing. So we'll definitely see that. But at the same time, I think there have been some forces that have been unleashed as far as remote work and sort of doing away with that commute and allowing workers to have a greater say in work-life balance, that if you are recruiting talent, there are going to be some companies that are going to use that as a bargaining chip. And they're going to say, hey, listen, uh, I know you, Mr. Coder, you have three offers from three different companies. You can work remote. You don't even have to be in the city. You can go to Austin. We saw that happening before the pandemic, because if you remember, uh, before the pandemic it was a real tight labor market. So there were some talk about how do you pry some of these, especially these tech workers away from other companies. So on one hand, you'll have these bellwether companies that will shape trends, but then you'll probably hear from recruiters and HR people that this is a, a perk that is not going to go away. Yeah. And that's very relevant to what you said earlier, which is that the competition for talent is going to be greater and greater now that this is a whole new option. And we can go after people who live in Lexington, Kentucky or San Diego, California, even if we're in Philadelphia. Yeah. Zeke, we look forward on looking forward to opportunities. As you well know, we've got a lot of people who sadly have lost their jobs due to COVID. Other individuals find themselves changing jobs, maybe even more so now than before COVID. We've got people starting second careers. I'm in a second career. Students trying to figure out what they should major in, what field they should go in. Entrepreneurs and investors are always looking for opportunities. As you think about all the things that we've talked about today and all that you've written about, reported on in terms of the changing work environment, workspaces, in terms of the inner cities, its impact on them and the business districts, where do you see some really good opportunities for individuals in some, if not all of these different categories? If I had an answer to that, I would be, I would win a Pulitzer. But <laughs> <laughs> let's hope you do. <laughs> I'll help you. <laughs> There's so many forces reshaping. And if you intersect the transformation of the workplace with the, the racial reckoning that we're going through as well, and you start layering all that together, it's a lot of different forces reshaping what we do from nine to five. But I think there is, uh, let's, let's talk about education for a second. I think there's a sense, you know, 22 million people lost their jobs at the height of the pandemic. 
And I think people are looking long and hard at education and how much it costs to get a college degree. And people are saying, you know, not everybody needs to go to college to make a middle wage job. I think there's going to be a, a push for more vocational training. There's going to be a push for a greater alignment between schools and the business world to make sure that people who graduate, who make that investment, aren't you know, left without a job and left paying off these massive loans. So I think there's going to be a real pressure on the educational sector to do its part uh, to, to get people back to work. Like I mentioned, business-wise, uh, there's a run on warehouse space and logistics becoming more and more important um, with the rise of e-commerce. What does that mean for opportunities? Who would benefit from that? Or does that mean more jobs for people who want to work in warehouses, jobs for people in logistics? Yeah. Again, let's use Old Philly as an example. Overnight, Amazon posted 35,000 jobs in Philadelphia. Overnight. The second largest number of openings was 5,000. This company, this Amazon, can reshape your workforce literally from night to day. But then you ask yourself, what kind of jobs are they? right? Are they family sustaining jobs? Are they middle wage jobs? Or are they low skill jobs? And that's uh, some of the conversation around Amazon right now. This unionizing effort in Alabama, um, people are asking, great, 35,000 jobs, but what kind of jobs are they? What do they pay? A lot of them are in, in the warehouses um, and logistics, um, like $15 an hour. And I think that's another pressure are people are going are to say that we don't want just any old job. We want to be able to, uh, you know, support our families. So these are opportunities replacing some of those manufacturing jobs that left us alone a way back. But I think there's a push to make these jobs better paid and, and with better benefits. How about more people working at home? Mm. Does that create opportunities for companies that make computers that make devices that enable us to work remotely. And then if you flip that around and the remaining office space, you talked about dividers between offices, concerns about public health and safety. Are there opportunities in those areas? It's so funny. And you should mention that. It's just how this, this phenomenon kind of works its way through our economy. Have you tried to get a contractor recently? Uh, it's virtually impossible. <laughs> <right>? Everybody is doing something to their house because we spend all day, you know, in our houses now. So the what what has that done? What does that cause? Pressurized lumber uh, has gone through the roof. Other like uh, housing materials have gone through the roof. So you you see those kind of distortions as as we sort of. Uh, get accustomed to what our world looks like now. Like I said, I think our, our, our baby boomers are going to be able to just hang out in, in the workforce a little bit longer. People are living longer. And I think it won't be as strange to hire somebody in the gig economy anymore. Before it was, you were kind of taking a risk if you wanted to hire somebody like a freelancer or a contractor. Yeah. Um, and now it's just way more common. And I think, um, these folks, there's going to be a lot more flexibility. And I think these folks, as they near retirement, are going to say to themselves, well, I'm not ready to hang it up. Uh, I just don't want to work five days a week anymore. So I think there's going to be greater flexibility. The, the bad news for, for millennials is that we have the baby boomers in the workforce a little bit longer. Right. <laughs> right. 
But I think a greater flexibility in designing what you do from nine to five. I think you're going to have a lot of folks who take advantage of the gig economy and take advantage of that flexibility to build themselves, customize work-life balance. Great. Can you talk one more minute, please, before we come to the conclusion about the design of the traditional offices? You see opportunities there for people who make those kinds of products or anything in that regard? Sure. Yeah, I think that the design, the design itself of offices is going to be uh, something that we talk about a lot. As I said in the beginning, there was really no innovation in what an office looked like for a very long time. But in, over the last 40 years, with cubicles, open floor plans, that has sort of quickened the pace of these different kinds of designs. I think the thinking has been that the office isn't just to supervise workers, right? It's to incentivize them. It's to bring out their best work. And I think we move from sort of the office being a pen for workers. Think about the whole typing pool in any World War II movie, right? It's just desk after desk. Yeah. To being a place where uh, workers can be creative and collaborate. So there's going to be a lot of, like I said, a lot of more uh, meeting spaces, collaboration spaces in, in offices. And I think there's going to be a, a lot of contractors at work reshaping, moving, moving desk, uh, putting down partitions. But it, it also depends on what sector you're talking about, what, what kind of industry. And, and uh, we've, we spent a lot of time today talking about office spaces, but then you're talking about retail stores and labs and hospitals um, and domestic workers. And what are they going to, what kind of new safety measures are they going to take? So it's changing just about every corner of our work life. Wow. Well, Zeke, thanks so much for sharing your insights, your perspectives, your forecasting with us. <laughs> How can our listeners find out more about you, the work that you're doing with the Philadelphia Inquirer and anything else you'd like to share with them? Uh, Jeff, thank you so much. It's, I've had such a great time chatting with you. It's been fun. I would say please support local journalism. And if that's the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, they can look up my work at, at our website, which is uh, www.inquirer.com. Excellent. Thank you again. I really appreciate your taking the time to be with me today. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.